0: My name is Gage,
1: and my name is Ray. Oh, oh it's me, Squidward. Hello. <laughs> Why hello there, dear sweet creature. We have missed your appearances.
0: Squidward needed to remind everybody that he's still very much here, very much alive and thriving. Just had to. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He just came out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You're listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. <laughs>
0: Okay, so it feels really nice to be back. It does. It feels extremely nice to be back. Before we move into our business for today, I would like to wish you a good day and a good week and And a a good good life. life. We are always wishing you the absolute best, no matter where you are or what you're doing.
1: Because we love you.
0: And we will always love you.
1: Only if you consent to it.
0: Because consent is
1: important. Very important. Important.
0: But yeah, it feels super good to be back. Um, those of you that follow our Facebook and Instagram pages, then you've already seen the update. But Ray was moving yes. all week last week.
1: Oh my God. And we're we're still we are <laughs> not out of the woods yet, man. Oh
0: my goodness. It was so much. <laughs> it
1: was. My so,
0: God, it was so much. <laughs> i lived
1: in this house for the past 15, 20 years with my family because today's economy sucks. So, you know, <laughs> oh, right? but no, like I, I live with my family and three of us are disabled. So moving a house that has 15 to 20 years worth of stuff.
0: Yeah, it was it was a fucking it lot. Was a lot and it was extremely hot out here in the Georgia heat, it is sweltering and it's humid. It was just oh my god. I'm I obviously would help you no matter what cuz right. you're family and you're like my best friend, so that's never the point. Oh, but was great. I was I very happy to like go the fuck home? Yes. <laughs>
1: I knew you were happy to go home.
0: Oh, like very much so, but <laughs> the
1: goodbyes were very quick. Bye, love you. I'm going in the house. <laughs> it
0: bit. was it was a lot, man. It was incredibly busy. We just did not have the time to make an episode last week. Unfortunately, there was just, it was just undoable. So, that's a gentle reminder for those of you that are new to the show. Um, If you would like to stay up to date with us, uh, you can follow our Facebook and our Instagram pages. And if we ever have anything come up to where we need to take a week off, it doesn't happen very often but it does happen sometimes but uh you can you can check Facebook and Instagram and that's where we update all of you to let you know what's going on so i would highly recommend following that so you're not left in the dark exactly. wondering where your episode is at One week <laughs> uh, where
1: are they they promised episodes and they have not delivered
0: <laughs> not delivering so that's just a gentle reminder definitely follow those pages we of course, appreciate your patience and your understanding, always, you know, working with us and being appreciative and happy and okay. We just really appreciate it. We don't want to leave you for a week, but we d- sometimes it happens.
1: No, we definitely didn't want to. We definitely didn't want to. It was hell week really? is what it was. Really? It was hell really?
0: Week. Just no time to do nothing. But we've taken a week. We've gotten the big bulk of stuff done. I'm pretty sure we are ready to dive into the... Atrocity? No, you're not. Of an episode
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, you're that not.
0: you've prepared. Oh my God, I'm nervous about it. I'm really nervous about it. From what what little bit you've told me, I'm just not down with it. So I guess let's go ahead and let's quit fucking around and prolonging the suffering, All right. and let's just do it. Just, <laughs> let's just do it. I'm scared.
1: Uh, today's case was requested by Heather. Hello, Heather. She sent us an email and suggested that we look into this case. And Heather. What the fuck? I want you to know this case has fucked me up. (laughs) This is your fault. I was in the midst of moving. I didn't know what I wanted to cover. Nothing was really calling to me until I went down the request list and watched a video on this one and ended up laying in bed. Staring at the ceiling, shaking my head, because you guys are gonna hate me.
0: Oh, no. I'm
1: sorry. I'm so sorry.
0: Oh, no.
1: Because today's case is fucking terrible.
0: Oh, my God.
1: But I would like to gently remind everyone that the cases we cover are picked randomly from lists that we have compiled, so if you've requested a case and we haven't gotten to it yet, don't worry. We haven't forgotten you.
0: We are definitely going to get to it. I promise.
1: We have a very huge disclaimer and trigger warnings today. Like, huge. Oof. Yeah. Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker and Roy Lewis Norris were two American serial killers that kidnapped, raped, tortured, and murdered five teenage girls over the span of five months.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: This happened in California during the 70s, and they were named the Toolbox Killers.
0: Which I've definitely heard the Toolbox Killers. Like, I've heard that name. And then, of course, you know, you have David Parker Ray, the toy box Killer. Yeah,
1: don't get confused. Um,
0: and I know David Parker Ray's case, but I don't know this case at all. Like, I genuinely really don't. So I'm, I'm going in blind.
1: Well, now I wish I didn't know this case.
0: Oh, you're not making me feel better about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This case is disturbing and shocking. The Toolbox Killers purposely targeted young teenage girls with little regard whether or not they were minors.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: Due to their age, I will do my best to tell this story with the utmost care. This episode is going to get very heavy and very graphic.
0: Oh, my God.
1: I want to know what the fuck was in the water. Like, what was in the food or in the air during the 70s to explain why there were so many fucking serial killers? (laughs) Somebody tell me. Please tell me.
0: Also, you guys, I left this out of the intro. I kind of forgot, but I wanted to give a little pre-note that my nieces are visiting my house today. Uh, And they're very young. (laughs) So if you possibly hear a child yell or laugh or whatever the case may be, that is just my niece. Um, There's not really much I can do about it. Me and Ray are bedroom podcasters we don't have a fancy recording studio or like anything of that nature so i just wanted to wanted to tell you guys that that if you just happen to get a surprise appearance from my baby niece that i am so sorry <laughs> i can't really go in there to a 4 year old and be like oh yeah i'm trying to record my murder podcast so like you should stop <laughs> I, I can't i can't exactly do that <laughs> so <laughs> I just wanted. to just sent me. I just. Uh, so yeah, we you can continue on with the episode. I just wanted to give that little pre note that you may or may not hear my nieces. So yeah. Oh
1: my god, <laughs> I love them.
0: I love them too. They're they're sweet as can be, but Lord, they are firecrackers, man. <laughs> Jesus, both of them are firecrackers.
1: The toolbox killers are known for torturing their victims with tools that are more commonly found in anyone's garage.
0: Jesus fucking Christ.
1: This depraved duo would fantasize together about things that they would or could do to young women, minors specifically, leading them to shape their sadistically brutal plan. These men would stalk the streets of Los Angeles, kidnapping, raping, torturing, and murdering teenage girls for five dark months in 1979.
0: Jesus, man!
1: Their crimes, particularly the murder of Shirley Ledford, would cause FBI profiler John E. Douglas to classify Lawrence Bittaker as "quote the most disturbing individual for whom he has ever created a criminal profile." End quote. God. Deputy District Attorney Steve Kay, who was the prosecutor in their trial. He would similarly describe the events as, quote, one of the most shocking, brutal cases in the history of American crime, end quote. Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: Jesus, that bad? Yes. Ooh, well, there's the vibe of today's episode, you guys. <laughs> there's the vibe right there. It's not, I don't think it's going to get better than it's this. you <laughs> error
1: 404, asshole not found.
0: <laughs> Son of a bit
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> ah, ah, <God. laughs> we're hardly 10 minutes in and I, my soul is weeping <laughs> my soul is weeping
1: so let's get into the story about who these two guys are lawrence sigmund Bittaker was born in pittsburgh pennsylvania on september 27th 1940 the couple that birthed him didn't want children, so he was taken to an orphanage. One source says he was in and out of foster homes before Mr. and Mrs. Bittaker adopted him. He was adopted as an infant and named Lawrence, or Larry for short. Okay. George Bittaker, his father, worked in aircraft factories, and this caused the family to move around a lot. So they went from Pennsylvania to Florida, then to Ohio, and finally settled in California. Okay. Larry was super smart. He tested having an IQ of 138. Damn. But although he was smart and living with what I assume is a good family, his rootless childhood stuck with him. I didn't see any reports of him coming from an abusive household. He dropped out of high school in 1957 at 17 years old because of several run-ins with juvenile authorities and police.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: After dropping out of high school, he was arrested in Long Beach for car theft, hit-and-run, and and evading arrest. He was imprisoned in the California Youth Authority until he turned 19. He never saw his adoptive parents again. After he was arrested, they disowned him.
0: Wow. Like, wow. Okay, that's a lot.
1: Yeah. The FBI arrested him in Louisiana just days after his release for violating the Interstate Motor Vehicle Theft Act. The short of it, basically, he took a stolen car over state lines, which is a federal offense. And he was convicted in August of 1959, where he was sentenced to 18 months in an Oklahoma federal reformatory.
0: Wow. Damn.
1: So he's kind of going through it. Shortly after his incarceration, due to his behavior, he was transferred to the United States Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Missouri he was released after serving six months of the sentence. Larry made his way back to California, where he was arrested again for robbery. This happened in Los Angeles in December of 1960. Okay. So in May the next year, he was sentenced to serve an indeterminate time of 1 to 15 years in a state prison. A psychiatric evaluation by a prison psychiatrist determined that Larry was not only diagnosed to be paranoid and borderline psychotic, with little control over his impulses. They also noted him as being highly manipula- manipulative. That is such a hard word. <laughs> it is. Listen, I have a speech impediment, and sometimes these <laughs> words, I'm just like...
0: But you know what? You do good. You I do, do good. You do just fine.
1: <laughs> so he was highly manipulative. There we go. And, quote, having considerable concealed hostility, end quote.
0: Oh, that's that's chilling.
1: Really chilling.
0: And at this point in the story from, like, what I'm gathering, he's so young. Yes. Like, he's still so young, and he's just racking up this prison time, and it's just, ugh. Uh, uh, not off to a good start.
1: Despite those findings, he was released in 1963. What? Yeah, Despite the findings that he was having considerable concealed hostility, he was still released in 1963. Let me say that again. (laughs)
0: Jesus, man. Jesus.
1: So, a little more than a month after being paroled, I believe two months later, Bitteker then committed another hit-and-run, petty theft, and violation of parole to which he was sentenced to another five years in prison. He was released after three (laughs) what the hell i mean come on
0: what the hell bro
1: and then larry was arrested again for burglary in october of 1964 he was sentenced to six months to 15 years and was released early yet again
0: this is,
1: <laughs> this is, this is our, our criminal justice system at work. this I mean, is
0: insane.
1: Granted, this was all the way back in the sixties and seventies. But has but it
0: really improved that much today? No, 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 it hasn't. no so it has, you know, it no. has not. <laughs> God, man.
1: While in prison, he was given another psychiatric evaluation in 1966. And Larry confessed during one of these sessions that stealing made him feel important. He then added that his crimes occurred, quote, under circumstances that were not totally my fault, end quote.
0: All righty.
1: He was determined to be borderline psychotic again, yet he was still let out. Shit blows my mind. Like he was let out again. In July of 1967, he was arrested and convicted of theft and another hit and run accident. He was sentenced to five years, but released in April of 1970.
0: Jesus fucking Christ.
1: In March of 1971, he was picked up for burglary and parole violation. <laughs> again. <laughs> he was sentenced to six months to 15 years that October, and he served three years of that sentence. He was arrested again. In- <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: my God. Yeah.
1: He was arrested again in 1974 and convicted of attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. Lawrence stuffed a steak down his pants and a supermarket employee followed him outside and tried to stop him. So he stabs the poor guy, barely missing his heart, in the parking lot of this guy's work. Like,
0: Jesus.
1: Could you imagine just going to work one day and get stabbed by some fucking psycho? Like, that's.
0: Absolutely not. Fucked up. Jesus, man.
1: Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Robert Markman examined Larry before the trial and he rejected the earlier findings of borderline psychosis. Instead, he was determined to be a quote unquote classic sociopath. Alrighty. In his memoir, Alone with the Devil, written in 1989, Dr. Markman explained the diagnosis simply meant that Larry, quote, was incapable of learning to play by the rules. He would never learn by experience and he would just keep butting his head against the barriers of acceptable behavior, end quote. Dr. Markman also warned that he was going to escalate to more serious crimes. He was a highly dangerous man with no internal controls over his impulses. A man who could kill without hesitation or remorse.
0: Well, I mean, that escalation does happen.
1: He tried to tell him.
0: Like, it does happen, and you you see it so much. It starts out as it can be petty robbery, petty theft, uh, car robbery, Mm -hmm. um, minor assaults, things like that. But that escalation will always happen if they're left to their own devices, if their ego is fed. That escalation does very much happen.
1: Yeah. So Larry later reinforced Dr. Markman's warnings by running his mouth to a cellmate, saying someday he would be, quote, bigger than Manson, end quote.
0: Uh, My jaw just...
1: (sighs) He was sentenced to be placed in the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo, this is where he met Roy Norris. He was given yet another psychiatric evaluation in 1977, and this evaluation found Bittaker more than likely to commit new crimes upon his release, agreeing with Dr. Markman. A year later, in July of 1978, another psychiatrist called him a sophisticated psychopath whose prospects for successful parole were guarded at best. Basically saying he needs to be watched if he's ever out on the street again. Like, he needs to have surveillance on him.
0: Right, right, right.
1: Again, the warnings were ignored, and he was released in November of 1978, and he would then move to Los Angeles. By his release in 1978, Larry and Roy had become close prison acquaintances. I dare say he made himself a friend
0: jesus i
1: mean who the fuck would think that serial killers could have friends but here he is Pretty. i know it it actually
0: is really (laughs) wild to think that like brutal killers have best friends like that's wild like it's so wild
1: they shared a perverse obsession with sexual violence against women and they would confide in each other about their fantasies roy confided that his biggest thrill was overwhelming women with fear and terror like he enjoyed seeing the fear on their face
0: what a fucking monster.
1: Larry confided that if he ever raped a woman, he would just kill her to avoid leaving behind a witness.
0: And this is just casual. Yeah. Casual fucking conversation between them. Like,
1: hey, best friend, let me tell you about this fucking crazy fantasy that I have. Right. You know, Jesus. it's like
0: this. I mean, that's fucking scary because I don't know. I want to say that it's rare. For someone to be that fucked up and that sadistic and, you know, because something's clearly fucking wrong up there.
1: But then again, we have a true crime podcast and we talk about these fuckers all the time.
0: But talking about <laughs> it versus doing it, you know, is a little different. Like my yeah. my point is to have someone with that many fucking screws loose for something to be that wrong where they're that sadistic, that psychopathic. That's rare enough in itself to have one person Like that, but for one person that's like that, to meet another fucking person that just happens to be like that,
1: that is chilling. Yeah.
0: That is so chilling, and I, we literally are not even that far in, and I can already tell you that I fucking hate the story. Like, I, ugh, it's just not looking good, man. Not looking good.
1: Their conversations and shared fantasies were mainly about dominating, raping, torturing, and murdering teenage girls. They even settled on an age range they wanted to target. Both men pledged that they would reunite on the outside and carry out their sinister plans. Like
0: What the fuck? What in the fuck?
1: This is like you and I just being like, hey, bitch, what are you doing on a Saturday at 2 (laughs) p.m.? Nothing, you know.
0: Jesus.
1: Roy thought it might be fun to play a game. Selecting and murdering one girl of each teenage year. 13 through 19 and to see how long each girl could be kept alive and screaming
0: what the fuck you mean like 113 year old 114 year old Mm -hmm. 115 year old and so on and oh my god that is fucked up
1: they agreed the younger the women the easier it would be to dominate them they even talked about how they would record these moments so they could basically revisit their crimes This was considered to be fun for them. They were inseparable, day in, day out, discussing this sick shit. So now that we're at this point, let me give you the backstory on who Roy is. So Roy Lewis Norris was born in Greenlee, Colorado on February 2nd, 1948. Unlike Larry, Roy lived in his hometown until he was 17, but he had a very difficult childhood. He lived with both of his parents who married to avoid the social stigma of having a kid out of wedlock, so his mother had substance abuse issues and would stay home during the day while his father worked in a scrapyard. Roy was frequently removed and placed in foster homes and allegedly suffered neglect by these families and sexual abuse by at least one of them. He said he often went hungry and was without sufficient clothing. He attempted suicide when he was 16 years old. He was visiting a relative when he said something sexual in nature to her. Not only did she tell him to leave, but she told his father what he had said.
0: Oh, fuck.
1: Ooh, I'm a tell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a
0: Jesus.
1: Threatened with physical violence by his father, Roy retreated into the mountains in his father's car. In these mountains, he injected himself with air trying to cause an air embolism. What? Yeah. So basically, if you put a syringe into your vein and you inject air into your vein, it will create an air embolism and it could instantly kill you.
0: What the fuck? All right.
1: Yeah. Pretty, pretty all, fucking wild. All right. All right. So after this failed, he was picked up by police and brought home. When he got home, his mom told him that he was not a wanted baby and she was divorcing his dad. So he just tried to kill himself. Police brings him home. Oh, you're not wanted and I'm divorcing your dad.
0: Great dandy.
1: Thanks, mom.
0: Awesome and lit. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, fuck. That is I mean, that's sad.
1: It's terrible. Within a year of this incident, he ended up dropping out of school, and he joined the Navy. He would spend most of his service stationed in San Diego. And in 1969, Roy was shipped to Vietnam for four months. He didn't see any combat while he was there, but he did start smoking weed. A lot of drugs were widely available in Vietnam at that time, and soldiers were becoming addicted to drugs, which, I mean... I don't blame them. They were dealing with some shit. Right, <laughs> right. Some right. shit.
0: I, I couldn't imagine, man. I truly couldn't. Like, have. I'd
1: be surprised if you left to go fight a war and not want drugs afterwards.
0: I, again, couldn't imagine. No judgment here. <laughs> Fuck.
1: In 1969, Roy returned to San Diego, and sometime in November, he would be arrested for attempted rape. He attacked a female motorist in downtown San Diego by forcing his way into her car and attacking her.
0: That is some scary shit.
1: He was let out on bail.
0: Of course he was. Of fucking course he was. Jesus.
1: It's now three months later, before his trial for attacking the motorist. And he's arrested yet again in San Diego. Roy walked up to this woman's house and knocked on her door asking if he could use her telephone. And when she refused, he tried to break in through the living room window. Then ran around the back of the house to the kitchen. He was able to get in through a window there, but before he could do anything, before he could harm her, police arrived. Again, he was let out on bail.
0: What in the literal fuck?
1: Now roy was still in the navy with all this going on so the navy is like all right i've seen enough you know
0: right you're gonna have to go
1: yeah you're gonna have to go he received an administrative discharge for psychological problems after he was diagnosed as having a severe schizoid personality in may of 1970 roy attacked another young woman while awaiting disposition of his previous assault cases. This happened on the campus grounds of the San Diego State College. In May of 1970, Roy attacked another young woman while awaiting disposition of his previous assault cases. This happened on the campus grounds of the San Diego State College. He tackled her from behind, clubbed her with a stone, and then slammed her head repeatedly into a concrete sidewalk. Jesus! The woman survived... And he was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. This My was finally God. enough to take Roy Norris off the streets, which angers me. The whole thing angers me.
0: Yeah, because it's like, why did it take this for you to stop him when he's out here literally
1: Hurt burglarizing
0: people. women on the fucking highway, trying to break into people's houses? Like, I don't understand that shit either. I don't. But, you know, that's a whole nother tangent for a whole nother episode. Right.
1: Right. He was sent off to Atascadero State Hospital as a mentally disordered sex offender.
0: The Atascadero State Hospital for the Criminally Insane? Yes. That is exactly where Edmund Kemper went.
1: Oh, Lord. That is
0: exactly where Edmund Kemper went. We
1: love when things come full You're, circle. <laughs> you remember
0: when, uh, and I, small tangent, when Edmund Kemper murdered his grandparents? Yeah. When he was a teenager, yeah. he went to a Tascadero and that's where he worked with the psychiatrist and basically, you know, fooled his way of getting out. It was a Tascadero.
1: Oh, well, you know, he was able to get out. Huh. <laughs> so was Roy.
0: Oh, my God, man.
1: He <sighs> spent five years there before they released him on probation. Officially on paperwork, he was described as someone who, quote, would bring no further danger to others, end quote. So that makes you think, like, what the fuck? If if Edmund Kemper was able to get out of there, and now Roy Norris is able to get out of there, what does that say about a Tascadero?
0: I mean, it you says know? it says a lot. But like, what does it say about the system as a whole? It's just, it's, it's mean, not
1: good. Trash.
0: It's just not good. That's just fucking insane to me. Like. Because they also labeled, and I'm not going to bring him up anymore after this, I promise, because Lord Jesus Edmund Kemper, that man, like, fucks me up permanently. But they when they let him go, he was considered completely not dangerous.
1: Right. Low
0: risk. Right. It's fucking wild. So. Oh, my God. Which, by the way, if you would like to hear... My coverage of Edmund Kemper, it's a really old episode of ours, like from the beginning of our show. It's an old gem, but totally go check that out if you want to. It's
1: still fantastic, I promise.
0: <laughs> God, it's just a case that messes me up, man. To just, ugh.
1: So Roy would prove this prediction to be wrong with just three months, just three months later, that's it, in Redondo Beach. He was joyriding on his motorcycle. He spotted a 27 year old woman walking home. She was on a date with her boyfriend at a restaurant. They got into a fight, so she started walking. So Roy stops and offers her a ride. She politely declined, smart girl, but he jumped off his bike and attacked her.
0: Jesus fucking Christ.
1: He used her own scarf to strangle her into a semi-conscious state. Scared that the man was going to kill her, she thought it best to not fight back. If she resisted him, he was going to kill her. So Roy dragged her behind a nearby hedge and raped her. What the fuck? She was unable to provide a clear description of her attacker and the police couldn't do anything to help her. But get this shit. One month later, the woman saw Roy again, memorized his license plate number, ...and called the police.
0: What a bad bitch. Right? Oh my goodness, man.
1: Convicted of forcible rape, Roy was sent to the California Men's Colony at San Luis Obispo... ...where he met and befriended Larry Bittaker. Reminiscing years later, Roy claimed that Larry saved his life twice while on the inside. This experience bound him to Larry, and according to Prison Code... Roy now owed Larry his life. He was to follow any plan that Bittaker devised for him, no matter the job. <sighs> right. Larry Bittaker was paroled on November 15, 1978. He then returned to Los Angeles, where he found work as a machinist. Roy Norris was freed exactly two months later, on January 15, 1979. He moved in with his mother at an L.A. trailer park and used his Navy training to find work as an electrician. This is also where it's believed that he began an incestuous relationship with his mother. What? Yeah. Ugh. Now that's just, I mean, it's speculated, but, you know. Still. Larry wrote to Roy in February of 1979 and arranged a rendezvous at a cheap downtown hotel over drinks they rekindled their prison friendship and repeated their dark desires to confirm it wasn't just talk
0: what in the fuck <laughs> just, uh, the the casualness of it right. is jesus it's just it's fucking chilling it's really really chilling i just like it's hard to grasp that this is real this sounds like the worst movie plot in the whole fucking world but like it's real it's real like these two motherfuckers had a dinner date yes to discuss the horrendous shit they wanted to do i don't understand that it's, but okay it's,
1: it's bad i'm
0: gonna i'm just gonna zip, i'm gonna zip my mouth up i'm just gonna let you keep on going just keep on going
1: abducting teenage girls discreetly wouldn't be easy so they decided they needed a vehicle larry proposed that they get a van so roy gave him the money for it he financed it in February of 1979, Larry purchased a silver 1977 GMC Vendora, which is a cargo van. The van had its advantages. There were no side windows, and there was a large sliding door on the passenger side. If potential victims refused their offer for a ride, Larry said they could, quote, pull up real close and not have to open the doors all the way, end quote, so that way they could snatch up their victim
0: jesus this is very chicago
1: ripper crewy exactly
0: like i'm not i'm not vibing i'm really not vibing but all right (laughs) larry
1: nicknamed this van the murder mac
0: the murder
1: mac the murder mac
0: shut the fuck up (laughs) that is a the lamest shit i've ever heard in my life b what the fuck what in the fuck
1: From February to June of 1979, Larry and Roy drove up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. They stopped at beaches, they flirted with girls, and they would take pictures of these girls they were talking to. Detectives later counted over 500 photos of smiling young women in Larry's belongings. Most of the women in these pictures were never identified. Gotcha. Roy later estimated that they picked up 20 girls without harming any of them. He explained that they were test runs. The rape and murder could wait until they found the perfect isolated spot to take their victims.
0: Jesus fucking Christ, man.
1: Sometime in late April, just driving around without anywhere particular in mind, they found a remote fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. Larry snapped the lock on the entry gate with a crowbar and replaced it with one of his own. If you're unfamiliar with fire roads, it's just a road to help contain a fire to a certain location.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So
1: that way it doesn't spread. And this road is literally in the middle of nowhere.
0: My God.
1: Their final preparations are chilling. Chilling. Larry and Roy put together a toolbox, and inside this toolbox, they had plastic tape, pliers, rope, knives, and an ice pick, and a sledgehammer, a Polaroid camera, and a tape recorder.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Next to this toolbox was a cooler to keep drinks in, which was a lure to get the girls to hang out with them. Larry also constructed a bed in the back of the van. The bed was mounted on a frame, and underneath that frame was enough space to hide a body. He was just full of sick fucking ideas, apparently.
0: Yeah, I'm just sitting here like fucking blown. Like, we haven't even gotten into the crimes yet. And the amount of casualness, the amount of fucking preparation, the like, this is fucking insane. Like, this is
1: meditated tr- as fuck. fuck.
0: Like, this is, I'm just blown. Like, I'm truly fucking blown. Like, they're building beds and putting together toolboxes and, oh my, oh my god, man.
1: Speaking of sick fucking ideas, according to the book Disguise of Sanity, Serial Mass Murders, Larry wanted to build a small town where he would imprison kidnapped teenage girls. He wanted to chain them up naked so he could torture them or assault them whenever he wanted.
0: Jesus, Jesus, Jesus.
1: Going forward, I've done my best to find everything I could on these victims so we can properly give them the respect they deserve. But as you know, sometimes the information just isn't there.
0: Right, right.
1: What you're about to hear is gruesome and disturbing. And one more side note before we get into it. You will hear the name Laura Brand here and there. She's a private investigator and one of the foremost experts on the Toolbox Killers. She's done extensive interviews with both Larry and Roy, as well as interviews with the victims' families. So anytime I mention her or talk about her, you know who she is. Gotcha. Gotcha. June 24th, 1979. Their first victim was 16-year-old Lucinda Cindy Schaefer.
0: She was 16. She was 16. So she's a baby. Yeah. Oh, my God.
1: She was born July 9th, 1963 in Bexar County, Texas. Everyone who knew her said Cindy was a sweet and caring girl. She was beautiful, smart, and hardworking. She had plans of going to college to study language and wanted to teach foreign language just like her mother.
0: Oh, wow. Wow.
1: She dreamed of teaching English to underprivileged children in Mexico. She spoke fluent Spanish and would also spend her time playing the guitar.
0: What an incredibly bright girl. Holy shit. This just, oh my God, I'm sorry. I don't mean to keep like interrupting you, but this is breaking my fucking heart. Because of the potential and, and the life that this child had. Like I'm already just, this is not going to be good. (laughs) <laughs> this is this is not going to fucking be good. This is not going to be good. I am already getting so sad and so fucking angry and we I don't even know what happened and I'm already angry.
1: She was a young girl whose life was tragically cut short just 2 weeks before her 17th birthday. Fuck. Cindy's parents were divorced in 1971, so her father lived in Texas and she rarely saw him. Her mother, who she lived with, was a Montessori school teacher who is conducting a summer seminar for teachers in Mexico City. So this is a side note for you, and kind of random. I looked up Montessori Teaching because I didn't know what it was, but it's based on self-directed activity, hands-on learning, and collaborative play where children make creative choices in their learning, while the teacher offers age-appropriate activities to help guide the process. So basically, the children are very involved in their own learning.
0: I totally see how that would be a very effective way to teach. Honestly, sounds good. I wish I
1: had that in my childhood.
0: Right. I'm telling you, all we had was math quizzes, shitty naps, and bitchy teachers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, I can only speak for me. I can only speak for me.
1: I slept during math, so.
0: (laughs) I'm telling you, like.
1: That was my plan that time. I failed math. In, in every grade, I failed math. <laughs> I do not math. My brain will not put two and two together, but if you want something from English lit, I got you.
0: Right, right. <laughs> math definitely wasn't my strong point either.
1: So Cindy arrived at her grandparents' house in Torrance, California on June 5th. She planned to spend the summer working and enjoying her time at the beach. Cindy had been fortunate enough to find a job just after arriving, and according to her grandmother, she was really liking it. She had just left one of many temporary homes because her mother moved around a lot for work. Right. She was supposed to rejoin up with her mom that August in Portland for yet another reset life. So, new home, new school, new friends. Cindy's mom left for her business in Mexico just five days before Cindy's disappearance which was the last time that she saw her daughter. My God. Hug your people close, man. You never know when your last moment is with them.
0: I'm telling you, it's so sad. Like, this is fucking sad.
1: Cindy walked most places, but her grandmother drove her to St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Redondo Beach. She was dropped off at 7.25 p.m. at Avenue D and Pacific Coast Highway for a weekly Christian youth teen meeting, which she had attended only once before. She entered the church, but she didn't stay long enough for the meeting to begin. She apparently just walked out. She got there, saw people chatting amongst themselves, wasn't feeling it, and she turned to leave. I mean, same
0: right right i
1: came i saw i had anxiety so i left
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're fucking preach preach
1: her grandmother later told police quote cindy is basically a little shy and may have felt out of place in the group of strangers end quote oh cindy began walking back to her grandmother's house and just minutes after leaving she was spotted and targeted by the toolbox killers
0: Oh, my fucking
1: God. She would be their first and only non-hitchhiking victim. Larry would later tell police that the day started innocently enough. He spent the night in the murder mac parked outside the trailer Roy shared with his mother. They spent the morning working on the mounted bed in the van, and at about 11 a.m., they began their hunt. He described it as, quote, a nice Sunday to cruise around the beach area, drinking beer, smoking grass, and flirting with the girls. We had no set routine, end quote.
0: Fucking pigs.
1: They made the rounds, driving north and hitting all the stops between Redondo Beach and Santa Monica, keeping an eye out for female hitchhikers. Sometimes they'd park the van and scout a stretch of sand by foot. By 5 p.m., they were back in Redondo Beach. Later, Larry and Roy actually fought over who was the first to notice Cindy, accusing each other of pointing her out and suggesting that she be the first contestant in their game.
0: What in the fuck?
1: They pulled the murder mac up next to her and Roy offered her a ride and some marijuana. Cindy declined and kept walking. So they followed her and watched her as she bent down and played with a stray kitten on her walk home. Oh my god. The short amount of time she had taken to play with the kitten gave Larry and Roy enough time to plan her abduction. They drove ahead and parked on the side of the street that she was walking down and positioned the van in front of someone's driveway, waiting for her to walk by. They acted as if they were fixing the van, and Roy was on the outside, pretending to work on the door latch with the sliding door wide open. Larry was inside, sitting at the wheel, waiting to step on the gas.
0: Oh my god.
1: Larry claims that as Cindy was approaching the van, he had actually seen her hesitate and she almost walked across the road away from them. Noticing this, he turned around and shouted out something to Roy to further give the illusion they were fixing the van. Whatever he said made Cindy feel safe enough to walk by them. As she passed the van, Roy turned around, ran up behind her, picked her up with a hand over her mouth, and swung her into the van. Another source said that after she refused the ride, they followed her, but she ignored them. Then the van sped up and pulled into a driveway in front of her. Roy then got out of the van and approached her on the sidewalk, smiling and repeating his offer. As Cindy went to brush past him, Roy grabbed her and forced her into the van. So there's... Conflicting reports there, but I wanted to give both versions.
0: Jesus fucking Christ. Either way, she was snatched off the fucking street in the middle of the day. Yes. These two are fucking pigs, like absolute fucking pigs.
1: Personally, I think both of these versions have some semblance of truth to them, and they both paint a clear picture. Either way, they snatched her up and put her in the van. Like, that's just the end line. But Larry cranked up the radio's volume. No one heard her screams. Roy grappled her to the, like, floor of the van and sealed her lips with duct tape. He also bound her wrists and ankles with duct tape. And one of her shoes was the only thing left behind on the sidewalk as the murder max sped away. She was only two blocks away from her grandmother's house when they took her.
0: Jesus...
1: Roy and Larry took her to their spot in the mountains and parked out of sight from the highway. The men smoked weed and questioned her about her family until they grew bored and ordered her to strip naked. Larry left the van for an hour or so, giving Roy some privacy, and then he came back to take his turn. They raped her.
0: Oh, my God.
1: One source said they repeatedly raped her throughout the course of torturing her. They used a hammer to torture her and pliers to remove her teeth. In Larry's prison memoirs, he wrote, quote, Throughout the whole experience, Cindy displayed a magnificent state of self control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. End quote.
0: Fuck both of you. Like, literally, fuck both of you. I cannot.
1: While being tortured, Cindy summoned up the strength to ask if they were going to kill her. Lying, just for the fun of it, Roy said no. But she knew he was lying, and she pleaded to them to allow her time to pray before killing her. They laughed at her and denied her request. Roy tried to strangle Cindy with his bare hands, but he realized killing someone was a lot harder to do in person than on the movies. He left to go throw up in the weeds. When he returned, he saw that Larry took over and strangled her until she started convulsing. He said, quote, her body was still jerking, alive to some degree, breathing or trying to breathe, quote. Larry then handed him a wire coat hanger and they twisted it around her neck, tightening it down on her neck with vice grip pliers. Roy said she, quote, convulsed for 15 seconds or so, and that was it. She just died, end quote. They wrapped her body in a plastic shower curtain, then headed down the fire road deeper into the wilderness until they found a deep canyon. They then threw her into this canyon, and Larry then tells Roy, quote, don't worry, the animals would eat her up. There wouldn't be any evidence left, end quote. Living out their fantasy was nearly perfect. But there was something missing. So they agreed that next time they would keep a trophy. Because Cindy previously lived in Mexico, police first believed she missed her mother and left to be with her. But that theory was very short lived when they found Cindy's clothes, money, and Mexican visa in her room. They also checked her bank account and found there was no bank activity since the date of her disappearance, which contained 320 bucks. She hadn't picked up her paycheck at the Torrance Pediatrician's office either, and even though this was a new job, she was pretty dependable. She worked there from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day, and she never missed a day. Police contacted Cindy's parents, her friends in several states, and her brother, who was a college student in Nebraska. She had a boyfriend back in Wisconsin that called her every three days. Even he knew nothing. So again, the police were empty-handed. And this was completely out of character for her. She had left home several times before, but she always made it a point to contact her mom to say, hey, I'm at so-and-so, and I'm all right.
0: Right, right.
1: But no one heard from her. The police knew this was not a runaway situation. Laura Brand said, quote, when Cindy's mom and grandmother were running around all over trying to find Cindy after she went missing, Roy wanted to call Cindy's grandma and say, I killed the bitch and hang up what? Yeah.
0: He called.
1: No, he wanted to call. Whoa.
0: Holy fucking shit. Like my blood pressure <laughs> Roy
1: told just Lo- went
0: so fucking high.
1: Yeah, Roy told Laura Brand that while everyone was running around and they're all crazy looking for her that he wanted to call her grandmother and be like, I killed the bitch and hang up the phone. Yeah.
0: Fuck you, guy. Literally, f- fuck you. This is depravity of another fucking level
1: now although lawrence Bittaker and roy norris confessed to her murder cindy's remains to this day have never been found her boyfriend has never recovered from losing her even after over 40 years
0: oh my god that makes me want to fucking cry
1: <sighs> the depravity only increased with their second victim 18 year old andrea joy hall she was born on october 21st 1960 in cuyahoga falls ohio that's that's kind of a cool name i like that right 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 cuyahoga i think i'm saying that right (laughs) but she grew up in akron ohio andrea moved to los angeles california in february of 1978 and she would regularly send letters home to her family andrea didn't have a job at the time of her disappearance and her only source of income came from donating blood. She left behind a savings account containing just a few dollars. She was last seen hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway in Redondo Beach, California, on July 8, 1979. Larry and Roy spotted Andrea as they were driving along the highway. She was hitchhiking to visit her boyfriend, and as they slowed down to approach her, another vehicle pulled over and offered her a ride, which she accepted. So, they followed the car she got into from a distance until the vehicle pulled over in Redondo Beach to let Andrea out. This time, they'd try a different approach. Roy moved to the back of the van to make it look as if Larry was alone. Larry stopped the van next to her and asked her if she would like a ride and a cold drink. So, since it was hot and she had been walking, she accepted. As she was reaching for the van side door handle to get to the cooler, Roy attacked her and pulled her inside the van while Larry blasted the radio and drove off. Andrea <sighs> fought for her life, but Roy was too strong. He twisted her arm behind her back until she surrendered, and then he bound her wrists and ankles and covered her mouth with duct tape.
0: Jesus fucking Christ. it is so Chicago Ripper crewy. Very much. Oh my god, bro. Like, that is some truly scary shit just snatching people off the fucking street in broad fucking daylight. Like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And, like,
1: the part that got me about her capture was she was riding with someone else and they followed her.
0: Yeah, that's... It's like I was saying earlier, the amount of calculation and effort and planning that they've put in into, you know, this horrible shit is just, it's otherworldly. It's truly so, fucking insane.
1: Larry and Roy took turns raping Andrea several times. At one point, Roy saw what he believed to be vehicle headlights approaching, and Larry slapped his hand over her mouth and dragged her into some nearby bushes while Roy drove the van in search of the vehicle he had seen. They maintained communication through walkie-talkies. When he returned with the van, they drove to a deeper location in the San Gabriel Mountains. The level of terror, pain, and sexual assault would escalate from this point on for Larry and Roy's victims. Like, it just got exponentially worse from here. Andrea, stripped naked, raped, and terrified, was made to walk up a hill in front of the van's headlights, forced and threatened to pose in several positions as Larry took Polaroid pictures of her. He then forced her to perform oral copulation on him, and this was also photographed. Roy left in the van to go buy some beer at some point, maintaining their contact through the walkie-talkies, and when he returned, he found that Larry was alone, smiling and staring at photos he had taken. Photos that showed Andrea's face close up and contorted with fear.
0: Jesus fucking Christ.
1: Apparently, Larry told Andrea to list reasons why he should let her live. Roy later told police, quote, He told me that he told her he was going to kill her. He wanted to see what her argument would be for staying alive. He said that she didn't put up much of an argument, end quote. Larry viciously stabbed her with an ice pick through her ear, reaching her brain. He pulled out the ice pick and stabbed it into her other ear, and seeing that she was still alive and screaming, he finally stomped on the handle of the ice pick until it snapped. Andrea, somehow still alive, was then strangled until the little life she had left was snuffed out. Just like they'd done with Cindy, Andrea was thrown over a cliff into a bushy ravine for the animals in the California heat to dispose of.
0: Like, I am blown this is just absolutely fucking horrible.
1: Although Larry and Roy admitted they were the ones to kill her, her body has also never been found. It's now September 3rd, 1979, and the pair spot 15-year-old Jacqueline Doris Gilliam. Fifteen. Fifteen.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: And 13-year-old Jacqueline Leah Lamp together at a bus stop near Hermosa Beach
0: children children fucking children
1: the girls were headed to the beach and hadn't had any luck hitchhiking hitchhiking was like a really big thing back in the 60s and 70s yeah yeah like it was a way to get around right 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 so they hadn't had any luck larry and roy pull up in their van and offer the girls a ride cold drinks and some marijuana the girls weren't waiting for a bus but they seemed happy to accept a ride with no special destination in mind. So Larry and Roy later told police the girls were also glad to accept the offer to smoke a joint. Like that meant fucking anything.
0: I hate these two. Like we're not even we're not even through this and I just I fucking hate both of them. I truly do.
1: Larry lit up and passed the joint around and told the girls that he was headed for the beach but Jackie and Leah challenged him and spoke up because they noticed he turned away from the ocean and started driving north. Larry stalled with an excuse, claiming he only wanted to find a safe place to park while they got high. The girls again protested when he parked near a tennis court. Leah started to feel that something was very off, and she moved to open the door. Roy was faster than her, swinging a bag of lead weights and hitting her across the head, knocking her out. A bag of weights. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Leah regained consciousness and tried to escape again. She managed to get out of the van, but Roy overpowered her and snatched her back inside. A struggle ensued, and Larry jumped in to help Roy subdue the teenagers by running up and punching Leah in the face, also helping to shove her in the van where Roy bound her up with duct tape. Larry then ran back to the driver's seat, and it was only when the girls were secured in silence Larry noticed several tennis players watching from the nearby courts. Worried that somebody was going to call the police, he quickly sped away toward his hideout in the San Gabriel Mountains with the music blaring. No one called the police. The witnesses returned to their tennis games, dismissing the strange incident like nothing ever happened. Neither Larry nor Roy had any type of sexual interest in Leah. And when Larry found out about Jackie's virginity, he purposely recorded her brutal rape and torture so he could listen to her cries. Particularly wanting to hear the devastation in her pleas from losing her virginity in such a violent manner. Truly sick shit. Among other things, the tape captured Roy raping Jackie, demanding that she role play as his cousin
0: what the f- what the fuck?
1: All the while telling her throughout this ordeal to be free to express her pain. The tape was never found. Oh
0: my god. My god, my god, my god.
1: Larry and Roy kept their new hostages alive for nearly two days. During the night, the men would take turns sleeping next to the girls while the other kept watch for headlights or attempted escapes. Two whole nightmarish days. The next morning, Larry took Leah up a hill took some photographs of her, and left her there. He returned to the van and arranged for Roy to take a series of photos of him with Jackie, beginning with them clothed, then nude, then during intercourse and oral copulation. Once he was finished, he went and brought Leah back to the van with the girls still inside the van. They drove into town for food and supplies. So they have these two young teenage girls, naked and bound up, in their van while they drive back into town to go get whatever they needed.
0: It's just absolutely fucking insane.
1: Larry liked to use pliers on his victims. It's reported that he would twist and pinch his victim's nipples and genitalia. He used his pliers to rip off Jackie's nipple. Then he grabbed the ice pick and thrusted it into her breast and twisted it. Fuck,
0: fuck, 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 fuck.
1: Larry was taking more photos of Jackie, growing tired of the girls, and he allegedly had to report back into work. So he had to end this so he could return to his life, so no one suspected him. I'm glad you get to.
0: Jesus.
1: Roy later told authorities that he had suggested to kill Jackie quickly since she was the more cooperative out of the two, to which Larry replied, no, they only die once anyway. Larry then repeated his trick with the ice pick, stabbing Jackie in both ears. As with Andrea Hall, it made her scream, but it failed to kill her. So they took turns strangling Jackie to death with a coat hanger and pliers. After they murdered Jackie, Larry grabbed up Leah, forcing her out of the van. Once she exited the sliding door, he shouted, You wanted to stay a virgin, now you can die a virgin. Then what Roy, the
0: f- oh my god. God. Yeah. This is fucking insane. This is so fucking depraved. It's crazy. Jesus. Like, I am just, I am over here detaching, (laughs) detaching, detaching.
1: I want none of it. (sighs) So when he yelled this, Roy took this as his cue and struck her across the head with a sledgehammer. Larry then strangled Leah while Roy bludgeoned her repeatedly in the head with a hammer. He struck her seven times. The bodies of Jackie Gilliam and Leah Lamp were thrown over an embankment into some overgrown, tangled shrubs and thorny bushes. The ice pick was still embedded in Jackie's skull.
0: Jesus fucking Christ.
1: Jackie and Leah were reported as missing by their families, but unfortunately the police treated their cases as runaways. We've talked about this a lot in previous episodes. A lot, a lot,
0: a lot, a lot.
1: first hours are lost. Like, crucial.
0: I've said it a million times, I'll say it again. Why police go into these situations where preconceived notions of what happened, I will never fucking understand that, but you know.
1: They wouldn't actually take their cases seriously until days later.
0: So fucking enraging. This case is enraging in so many, so many ways. So many.
1: Yes. On September 27th, 1979, they targeted Shirley Sanders. She was visiting her father in Manhattan Beach before returning home to Oregon. There's not a lot of information about what happened to her. From what I've pieced together through multiple sources, Shirley turned on a ride in the murder MAC and they pulled her into the van. Both men took turns raping her in the van, but somehow she managed to escape before they killed her. Shirley reported the assault, but all she could tell them was that she was pulled into a GMC van and raped by two men in their 30s. She couldn't identify her attackers or remember the license plate. But, I mean, she probably wasn't able to really give anything solid because she was fighting for her fucking life.
0: I mean, that's what I'm saying, like, Jesus.
1: Unable to pursue the matter further, she returned home to Oregon. On September 30th, they saw Jan Mallon park her car in an apartment garage. She returned to the garage entrance to close the door, and Larry walked up to her, then sprayed her in the face with chemical mace and dragged her kicking, screaming, and gasping for air from the sidewalk.
0: Jeez.
1: Now I'm going to pause there for a minute. So when I looked up the difference in chemical mace and the type of mace we know today, I learned me something. Oh, tell us what you've learned. The first type of aerosol self-defense spray was invented by Alan Lee Littman in the 1960s. It was the first commercial product of its type. Littman's design packaged phenicyl chloride, or CN, which is tear gas, dissolved in hydrocarbon solvents into a small aerosol spray can. The difference is, chemical mace is classified as an irritant, and is basically aerosolized tear gas. Pepper spray that we know today is just an inflammatory agent meant to incapacitate someone. Right. So they used, like, chemical fucking mace to spray this woman in the face. So she's choking. She's gasping for air. Tears are streaming down her face. She can't see. And now you have two men that have evil intentions. Like... That is fucking what nightmares are made out of. That is terrifying.
0: I just couldn't. I just could not imagine. I literally could not fucking imagine.
1: Jan's screaming began to bring people out of their houses, so Roy sped away in the van while Larry took off running. Jan Mallon's testimony corresponded to Roy's confession later on.
0: So she survived?
1: Yeah. Yeah, she survived.
0: My. I mean, thank goodness, but like, my god my god so like not only did they have their five you said i think it was five actual victims but they also had some people that they just brutally fucking attacked and they managed to somehow get away
1: well the only reason why she survived is because when she was screaming it
0: brought people's attention It brought people
1: out yeah and they were like i don't want that heat so they took off left her there
0: god man my god
1: and what sucks is it's not like she can give too much of a description they sprayed her in the face
0: with fucking chemical mace right my god man again i've said it like three or four times the calculation Mm -hmm. and the planning and the effort that these two put into this shit is just is just something fucking else truly it is
1: well, before we move forward, I want to take a moment for everyone to study themselves and prepare themselves. Because the next crime they committed is the culmination of their depravity. Through research, I have listened to a segment of the actual recording regarding our next victim. I have read the full transcript of what was on that tape. If you want to go search it out, that's your decision. But I will be cutting 90% of the transcript out due to the fact We are talking about a minor being sexually assaulted and tortured. I'll get through this as delicately as I can, but we are all here to discuss the facts. This is the worst part of today's episode, so if you would like to skip through, please do so. We will understand.
0: Right. I'm over here, like, fucking breathing heavy and shit. My God.
1: The month of October was nerve-wracking for Larry and Roy because they were worried that the police would come for them at any moment. Larry searched out and found a new apartment in Burbank, California, while Roy continued to live with his mother. They began to relax as the weeks passed on. No one was coming for them. They went hunting again on Halloween night, 1979. They deviated from their usual beach routine, deciding to drive around the residential streets of the Sunland to District in the San Fernando Valley. It's 10 p.m. when they spotted 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford standing outside of a gas station. She left work after her shift with a co-worker towards a Halloween party, and at the gas station she decided to walk or hitchhike home rather than go to the party. She was tired, she wanted to go home, she worked part-time as a waitress, and the restaurant she worked at was frequently visited by Larry Bittaker. Investigators believe Shirley accepted the given offer for a ride home from Larry and Roy only because she recognized Larry and she felt comfortable with the situation. Larry was driving while Roy rode in the back of the van. Larry decided not to waste time driving to the mountains. According to his reasoning, they could still rape and torture her while they're driving around.
0: What the fuck?
1: Which he figured would be better than being stopped and risk being spotted. Shirley was sitting in the passenger seat for only five minutes before Larry pulled off onto a quiet side street where he then slammed on the brakes. He pulled out a knife and forced Shirley from the passenger seat into the rear of the van where Roy would then wrestle her to the floor, strip her naked, and bound her mouth, legs, and her hands behind her back with tape. Larry turned on his tape recorder and traded places with Roy. As Roy drove around, he listened in and watched through the rear view. Everyone, brace yourselves. Included are small parts of the transcript of Larry Bittaker's cassette tape to walk you through the timeline of what happened and what these monsters did to this poor baby. You will understand later why I am telling the story this way, so just stick with me. This is going to be rough. There are extensive periods on this tape where literally the only thing you can hear are Shirley's heartbreaking screams, weeping, gasps of pain and agony, and wailing. As the tape begins, Larry removed the tape from her mouth and legs, then immediately started to slap and beat on Shirley. The first thing you hear in the recording is the sound of Larry smacking her repeatedly and demanding her to speak and scream. He goes, say something, girl, and terrified, she said, what do you want me to say? The slapping continues, followed by cries of pain. Frustrated, Larry asks her, You can scream louder than that, can't you? What's the matter? Don't you like to scream? Oh, my God. At this point, Shirley begins to cry profusely, and she begs Bitteker to stop hitting her, saying several times, No, don't touch me. It's speculated from the tape that Shirley curled into a ball and turned away from him as she wept. He yells at her to roll over several times and forces her to perform oral. He forces her to say that she wants to do it while he's beating her for not answering his questions or doing what he wants. Jesus fucking
0: Christ. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus Christ.
1: All the while, throughout her torture, he's encouraging her to scream. Repeated sounds of beating mixed with loud screams can be heard as Larry again ordered her to scream as loud as she wished. He then began striking her with a sledgehammer and beating her breasts with his fists. Repeatedly, Shirley can be heard pleading for the abuse to stop. This is when he pulls out his pliers from the toolbox. Shirley then lets out several high-pitched, prolonged screams and cries of agony as Larry alternately squeezed and twisted her labia, clitoris, nipples, and breasts with the pliers. Banging sounds can also be heard throughout, which are believed to have been made by Shirley as she was writhing around in response to the torture. He then inserts his pliers into her vaginal canal, twists it, and tears her. Jesus fucking Christ. A sharp, shrill scream followed by wailing sounds follow. He was torturing her with pliers both between and throughout instances when he raped and sodomized her. He then inserted the pliers into her rectum and twisted, tearing her and splitting the lining inside her rectum. Banging sounds can again be heard as Shirley flailed and screamed. After an hour or two, he turns off the tape recorder and changed places with Roy as Shirley lay crying and moaning in the back of the van. Three of the four victims previously killed had all been vaginally raped by Roy, but Larry had viciously torn Shirley's genitals and rectums with his pliers causing her to bleed. Roy didn't vaginally or anally rape her due to this, and instead, he forced her to fellate him as well. He turned on the recorder and began to torture Shirley more. On the tape, Roy's voice is heard this time. Make noise there, girl. Go ahead and scream or I'll make you scream. And this poor baby, desperate for any end to this nightmare, tries to appease him and says, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. He stops hitting her. She starts screaming, and he's encouraging her for louder screams, saying, until I say stop. Roy pulls out the sledgehammer from the toolbox. Shirley, seeing him do this again, begins crying, shouting, and screaming in fear. He strikes her left elbow with the hammer, and she cries out that he broke her elbow. Before pleading, don't hit me again, and Roy says, I barely hit it. He then raised the sledgehammer as Shirley repeatedly screamed, no. He then proceeded to strike her left elbow 25 consecutive times with the sledgehammer. 25, mindless, 25
0: fucking times. times?
1: Yeah. You hear me starting to stutter over here. I was having a difficult time. But yes, he um, consecutively hit her left elbow 25 times after breaking it in the first hit. While mindlessly chanting, keep it up, girl, keep it up, scream till I say stop. He was repeatedly fracturing her elbow each time the hammer struck it with a sickening thudding noise. A piercing scream can be heard following each hit. He then says, what are you sniveling about? As she continuously screamed and wept. Larry parked the van and prepared for the kill. Roy wrapped a wire coat hanger around her throat and tightened it down with pliers. After two hours of excruciating pain and torture, Shirley begged, Just do it. Kill me. Larry would later claim that the tape recording they created of Shirley's glaringly obvious abuse and torture offered nothing other than evidence of a threesome, adding that towards the very end, she was begging for them to kill her. It's fucking sick.
0: She was 16.
1: She was 16. Now they're emboldened. They're feeling invincible. They they thought it would be amusing to see what would happen if they dumped their victim on someone's front lawn. They wanted a reaction from the press. They're living in a time where there were numerous serial killers and the killers all had these nicknames the press gave them. So they were like, "Hey, we should do this one publicly so everyone will give us a cool nickname too."
0: <laughs> what?
1: Like fucking what like, in
0: the Fuck! Like a, I can't fucking stand <laughs> you for how you just. I, I can imagine that's probably how they said that's it. probably how these they two it. little sick, stupid fucks. But you know, I'm not gonna lie. I am still very detached. I have not. I have not even processed half of what we just went through with Shirley Ledford. That is absolutely one of the worst things in my life. And I'll just go ahead and say too. Like as Ray was saying, this. Actually is audio that you can listen to. We are never going to include something like that. But uh, if you want to go find it through your own research, then you do that. But before you did this episode, I remember you actually sent me this audio and you were like, I just listened to this. Not doing okay. This is, you know, what I'm covering. And I didn't listen to a lot of it, but I was like, you know what? My curiosity kind of like took over. Yeah. And I listened. And it is absolutely, it made me nauseous. It made me fucking almost start crying. I almost literally passed out, not even trying to exaggerate it. Like It absolutely just, it is going to be with me for the rest of my life. Like hearing this poor child just scream and scream and scream and scream. And I listened to that. And now that we're doing the episode and you've given me exactly what they did and what they were doing to her that's just in my head all i'm hearing that's all i can fucking hear yeah. right now and it's just like whew, i just i gotta detach i the, just i really gotta detach hardcore or i will have a panic attack like it's it's like that
1: the the audio itself the one that i sent you was only a couple of it's like a it's, minute and it's a half really, oh it's really short but You hear her screaming and then you hear them rewinding the tape and listening to it and rewinding the tape. And it's just this one small segment of it. But it is enough to really paint a picture. And the reason why I look at crime scene photos, I look at death photos, I listen to audio when I can. Because their last moments were fucking horrendous. They needed someone to help them. And I feel like by listening to these things and us discussing these things, it is them speaking through us of what happened to them and people should know about it.
0: Right. I think it's a way to to keep their memory alive. You know, like the victims are the are the important pieces of these cases, not the pieces of shit that perpetrate these crimes. It's just, you you know, to all of you listening, if you listen to this and you get a a wild hair to want to go listen to it, I'm just telling you now that it's
1: it's not it's.
0: Honestly, I wish I hadn't listened to it. Like, if I could go back and not listen to it and that not be in my mind for the rest of my life, then I would gladly do that. But there's no one doing it. So I just, man, this, this, the barbaricness, if that's even a fucking word, is just insane. We shall create the word. We shall create the word. This is just truly one of the most evil and depraved fucking things I've ever heard in my life. Like, I mean, truly it is.
1: They chose some random house in the Hermosa Beach suburbs. They unloaded her horrifically ravaged, battered, broken, and torn body from the van. And then they dumped her in a bed of ivy on the front lawn. In one final act of degradation, Roy placed her face up on her back with her arms outstretched and her legs spread apart. The wire hanger was still around her neck. Shirley's body was discovered the following morning by a jogger. This discovery was terrifying to the citizens of Los Angeles because it had only been a couple of days since the arrest of the Hillside Strangler, Angelo Buono. So the police are confused because as far as they were concerned, there weren't any more Hillside Strangler victims because he's out of the way now. He's locked up. So who the fuck did this then? You know?
0: Right, right. I just I couldn't imagine for them just to lay her on someone's front fucking lawn. Yeah, that
1: because they wanted they they wanted to see what the press had to say about it. I you hate, know, I
0: fucking hate these two. Like with my whole heart, I hate them. Truly, I do.
1: Shirley Ledford's autopsy revealed that she had been sexually violated, extensive blunt force trauma to the face, head, breasts and left elbow with her olecranon sustaining multiple fractures. The olecranon, cool name, is actually the pointiest part of your elbow.
0: Interesting. I did not know that.
1: Her vagina and rectum had been torn. A puncture wound was found on her left hand. Her finger had been slashed, and she also had deep welt marks on her wrists and ankles, indicating just how much she pulled and fought against her restraints. It would seem that Lawrence Bittaker and Roy had committed the perfect crime. The police had no clues, no leads, nothing. Had Roy Norris kept the murders to himself, they would have probably gotten away with all the horrible things they had done. Roy enjoyed the murders so much that he simply couldn't keep quiet about it. They were only caught because he bragged to a friend about their crime spree. That friend was Jimmy Dalton. Jimmy was another rapist that was Roy's friend on the inside, and their friendship carried over once they got out. Roy revealed the rapes and murders, including Shirley Ledford's murder. He was bragging to Jimmy, emphasizing his role as a criminal mastermind. Jimmy thought it was all talk until Shirley's body was found. So Jimmy called his lawyer and they both went to the Los Angeles police. The police put Jimmy in touch with the Hermosa Beach detective, Paul Bynum, who headed the investigation. With no forensic evidence to support a charge in the Ledford slaying, it seemed as if Shirley's killers were slipping away, until Jimmy mentioned a silver GMC van. Detective Bynum dispatched an officer to Oregon to interview Shirley Sanders. Photographs and mugshots were provided for her to look at. Leafing through the stack carefully, she immediately picked out Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris as the men who kidnapped and raped her. Detective Bynum contacted Deputy District Attorney Steve Kay who prosecuted Roy on his previous rape charge in Redondo Beach. So, like, he was already familiar with Roy. Right. He cautioned Bynum to have patience. Even though a quick arrest would halt the murder spree, they needed time to build a strong case. So Bynum set up surveillance on them, and once again, Roy proved to be the weakest link, because not only did he snitch on himself, but he also was seen selling marijuana on the street.
0: What a dumbass
1: police made their move two days before Thanksgiving in 1979 They arrested Roy for a parole violation on the marijuana charge Larry heard about the arrest and started destroying the evidence However, he missed one crucial piece the audio of Shirley's murder But time ran out for Larry as he was jailed on suspicion of kidnapping and raping Shirley Sanders He was arrested at his motel room on November 20th, 1979, the same day Roy was arrested. Roy, Ray, there goes my speech impediment. (laughs) Roy waived his right to counsel and mentally sparred with the interrogators for a while, but he eventually crumbled, casting himself as a reluctant accomplice to murders that were planned and carried out by Larry. He explained that due to the prison code, it was demanded that he had to go along with the ride. What the
0: fuck ever? Get the fuck out of here.
1: Carrying out whatever Larry wanted to do.
0: Fuck both of you.
1: After all, according to Roy, he owed Larry his life, but apparently not his silence. The (laughs) investigator... The shade has been thrown. (laughs) The shade... Oh,
0: the say that just sent me how you said it. You said, "Uh, but not his silence. But not (laughs) his
1: silence. I was not fucking around when I said not his silence.
0: (laughs) My God.
1: Period.
0: My God, my God.
1: The investigators matched Roy's confession to several missing person reports of teenage girls over the previous five months. During the search of Roy's apartment, a bracelet belonging to Shirley Levford was found. The search of Larry's motel room produced over 500 photographs. The police seized the van and the search of the murder mac began. They found several cassette tapes, including Shirley Levford's tape. And this is the part that gets me. Okay. Shirley's mother had to listen to the tape. Her mom
0: had to listen to that.
1: Yes. She had oh. to confirm that it was, in fact, her daughter's voice on the recording. Screaming, pleading, and begging for her life. Like, I could not. I couldn't.
0: No, there, there's, there's no, I can't even begin to put myself in that place.
1: As a mother, this is an unlocked fear for me. Like, I can't fathom what that would be like to hear your daughter's screams of agony knowing you can't help because she's gone and this is all that's left of her screaming until her death. The investigators also had to listen to the tape and they confirmed the voices of the killers as Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker Both Roy and Larry tried to deny everything. Then they tried to blame each other for the more hideous acts.
0: Of course. Fuck both of you.
1: Roy even claimed that he had been high on drugs most of the time and he was unable to go against what Larry wanted to do. But... The audio tapes told the true story. Roy was a willing participant, and when Roy was faced with this evidence, he confessed to his part in all five murders. Both men were charged with five counts of first-degree murder, plus additional charges of kidnapping, robbery, rape, deviant sexual assault, and criminal conspiracy. Roy realized he would have to do more to avoid the death penalty, like He would basically have to give up his left nut to avoid the death penalty at this point. So, seeking a plea deal, he agreed to not only testify against Larry, but also to fully cooperate in the investigation. So, you mean to tell me that prison code tells you you have to go along with whatever the fuck Larry wants to do?
0: Until you get caught.
1: Until you get caught, and then it's snitching. Snitching.
0: I think Harry Potter caught one of these two in the first movie.
1: Yeah, Golden Snitch. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. I'm done.
0: I'm fucking done. Done.
1: On February 9th, 1980, Roy led Detective Paul Bynum, Prosecutor Steve K, and members of the Sierra Madre search and rescue team to the San Gabriel Mountains murder sites. They found the skulls of Leah Lamp and Jackie Gillum. Larry's broken ice pick was still buried in Jackie's skull. There was no trace of Cindy Schaefer or Andrea Hall. Their remains were lost forever. And with this discovery, Roy had provided enough evidence to assure his plea bargain. Fucking roach.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. Like, still, I don't understand A, how killers have best friends, B, I don't understand how they get bargaining deals. Right. I don't understand. I Personally, me, I don't understand that. But, again, another tangent for a different episode. I just think it's wild that you can brutally fucking kill someone and then get a bargaining deal so you don't serve as much time. Right. I think that's fucking wild. But, you know, that's that's just me.
1: I mean, you know, this is America.
0: <laughs> Shirley Ledford or any of the other four didn't get a fucking bargaining deal. Right. Right. So I just, you know, again, that just pisses me the fuck off. That pisses me off to the extreme. It truly, truly does.
1: Before a defendant is formally sentenced in California, California requires a report and a sentencing recommendation from a parole officer. Roy's parole officer noted Roy's, quote, casual, unconcerned manner as he discussed the five murders without any sign of remorse. In the parole officer's opinion, Roy quote, appears compulsive in his need and desire to inflict pain and torture upon women. The defendant himself acknowledged that in the commission of rape upon a woman, it is not the sex that was important, but the domination of the woman. In considering the defendant's total lack of remorse about the plight of the victims, he can realistically be regarded as an extreme sociopath whose depraved, grotesque pattern of behavior is beyond rehabilitation. The magnitude and the enormity of the defendant's heinous, nightmarish criminal behavior is beyond the comprehension of this probation officer. End quote. My God. With that finding on file, Roy Norris pled guilty, sparing him the death penalty. On May 7, 1980, Roy was sentenced to 45 years to life, with a minimum of 30 years before parole eligibility in 2010 for his testimony against Larry. Lawrence Bittaker's trial began on January 19th, 1981. Prosecutor Stephen Kay told the jurors during the beginning of Larry's trial, quote, For those of you who do not know what hell is like, you will find out, end quote.
0: Oh, fuck. I, I, I can say that I agree with him. Jesus fucking Christ.
1: Roy took the stand and testified about their shared history and the five murders they committed. He also testified that Larry would amuse himself by playing the cassette tapes while driving around before they were arrested. So he was listening to these tapes like it was a fucking mixtape.
0: Again, my mind, I just, I hear that one minute snippet of that audio that I heard. And it's just, again, the casualness. How? How? Like, I don't understand. I just don't understand.
1: Actually, side note, let me pause here for two seconds because that when Laura Brand, when she interviewed him and she asked him, How are you a serial killer and I'm not? And he put it as simply as, Well, some people like pickles and some people don't.
0: Interesting.
1: So basically saying that, like, this is what I enjoy. This isn't necessarily what you're going to enjoy. This is what I enjoy.
0: Oh, I see. So he's basically, the answer to her question was the enjoyment factor, basically.
1: Basically, yes, that that was the underlying of what he said. But it was just like, you know, some people like pickles and some people don't.
0: Again, the casualness. Fuck you. Fuck you, guy.
1: Photographic evidence was introduced as a witness from Larry's Motel testified that Larry showed him pictures of naked girls in obvious distress and even told him that one of them had been killed. Next, a 17-year-old girl testified that Larry played a cassette tape for her, and according to court records, the tape contained the rape and torture of Jackie Gilliam. Again, that tape was never recovered. Then the 17-minute audio of Shirley Ledford's recording was played for the jury. The entire courtroom was affected as Shirley's screams echoed in the room. People cried, burying their heads in their hands. Even members of the jury couldn't take it as some of the court staff, including the court artist, fled the room, sick to their stomach. Some people were vomiting as well. Prosecutor Stephen Kay was reduced to tears. But Lawrence Bittaker sat through the whole thing, smiling and chuckling to himself.
0: What a fucking pig.
1: On February 5th, 1981, Lawrence Bittaker took the stand at his own trial. At his own trial. <laughs> Did you hear that shit? <laughs> at his own trial. <laughs> Damn. He completely denied all the allegations of rape, torture, and murder stating that he paid the girls for sex and got permission to record them and take their photographs.
0: I bet you did.
1: In the closing statement from Prosecutor Kay, he told the jury, quote, If the death penalty is not appropriate in this case, then when will it ever be? End quote.
0: I agree with him.
1: On February 17th, the jury found Lawrence Bittaker guilty and he was convicted on 26 felony charges five counts of first-degree murder, and several other charges that were special circumstances, including dealing with a minor. Two days later, he was sentenced to death. Sitting on death row after various appeals and stays of execution, Larry never expressed any remorse for his crimes, but he seemed to enjoy the attention he was getting. Much like a celebrity, he was autographing fan mail items with the name Pliers Bittaker.
0: Pliers, Bittaker, yeah, the murder Mac. Your naming fucking sucks, my guy. Like everything about you fucking sucks. It's the lamest shit I've ever fucking heard in my fucking life. I just wanted to take an opportunity to roast because what the fuck? Yeah, what in the absolute fuck? Next thing, fan mail from who? But from who? From who? Who in the fuck is ra- is sending fan mail to these two? Like
1: people actually did. People sent Ted Bundy and Edmund Kemper fan mail. Like, they actually did. This was something that people actually did. And I
0: know it's something that happened, but it does not make it any less just like, what, can we not have better fucking idols, people? Right. Like, what the fuck?
1: Bittaker died in San Quentin State Prison on December 13th, 2019, of natural causes. Norris died in prison of natural causes on February 24th, 2020.
0: So the one that got the death penalty wasn't executed?
1: No, he sat on death row until he died.
0: Great. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Great, great, great.
1: The aftermath, what the toolbox killers left behind, shook many people to their core. Including us. Two of us, yes. Including two of us.
0: Jesus. That, is,
1: that is a lot of people that are just shook. Just shook. But Stephen Kay reported recurring nightmares. And according to his interview with the Daily Breeze, he would be rushing to Bitteker's van to prevent any harm coming to the girls. But he would always get there too late.
0: Jesus fucking Christ.
1: Some jurors said they had nightmares after hearing the tape. One said, I had a dream I was coming down an elevator at the courthouse. And when it opened, Bitteker was standing there and he threw cinders in my face. End quote. Meanwhile, Shirley Ledford's tape is retained by the FBI and it is used to this day to train and desensitize FBI agents about the reality of torture and murder. And guys, before I conclude today's episode, I do have an honorable mention and that is Laura Brand. Her work to locate the missing remains of the toolbox killer victims that were never found is fucking phenomenal. She at first got in contact with them, I believe, around 2014. Mm-hmm. And um, she would go to Bitteker and she would sit down with him and talk to him to try to get him talking, you know, People would call her, um, I believe, the Siren of San Quentin, I believe.
0: (laughs) The Siren of San Quentin. (laughs) Yeah, because
1: she... I like that. She was known for getting certain killers to talk about where their victims were. So she was helping to find the victims. And um, there is actually a picture out there that Lawrence Bitteker wrote to her when he was giving her more information about, you know, where the bodies were. He wrote, like... L, here's some more goodies for you. And then like drew a happy face and then another L. Like it's just it's weird. Like he's overly happy just to be working with her or whatever. But
0: what in the fuck?
1: But she wrote a book and it's called What Hell Is Like the Untold Story of the Toolbox Killers. I've included some sources in the show notes so you can go check out that information in her work because I think what she's doing is amazing. And Oxygen has been doing interviews with her as well. So, yeah, I included that. But that pretty much (laughs) concludes today's episode. Um, I am very overly happy to be done with this because chokehold. Bitch, this episode was a chokehold. Heather, you're done. You're done. You're done. <laughs>
0: Heather, Heather, Heather you got some explaining to do. You got you some need, explaining to do. You need to
1: sit down and stop requesting shit. No, <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm
0: joking. <laughs> We're definitely joking, but on a real note, like I said in the beginning, I knew nothing of this case.
1: I was like, I, knew nothing.
0: I literally knew nothing. All I had going into this was the little bit of audio from Shirley Ledford's murder that you sent me and that you were telling me about. um, Other than that, I knew nothing and I had no other context. So I can safely say that this, uh, this was fucking one of the worst cases I've ever learned about in my life. I quite literally never want to think or talk about this ever again.
1: And I, I hate that. Like,
0: but at the same time, I'm happy that we covered it and I'm happy that it's out there and I'm, I'm I'm happy that we, that I've learned about it, but it's just like, fuck man. Like I, I hardly don't know what else to say. I felt like the only thing I said this whole episode was Jesus fucking Christ. Right.
1: That's how I feel a lot of the times. Like, when I'm sitting there listening to you, because I'm, I'm already naturally, majority of the time, I'm a quiet person. Um, But this case is just, um no, it's not it. It's not it. It, it is it's, definitely it's not, not it. It's not like I was looking into this case going, oh, hoo, hoo, you know. No, but, I don't
0: think we ever do that. Yeah, we
1: never do that. But... You know, we're we're going to give you guys the facts about what happened, but as delicately as we can, especially when dealing with minors, because, you know, I'm a mom of two. It's already hard enough for me to talk about knowing that, you know, Shirley Ledford was around my son's age, you know, and it, it just makes it hit home a little bit different yeah it's like
0: it's like we were talking about uh before we took our week off uh during the bone breaker case we brought up that same point it's like you know you're a mom so you have a little bit of insight in relation that i don't quite have so i can imagine it's a little a little bit diff- more difficult and, and and weirder for you in a way yeah. to hear cases like that and then good god like going back to shirley ledford Oh my god, my heart breaks for all all of these victims. But for Shirley's mother to not only find out the truth of what happened and her and her daughter to be found the way that she was found, but you have that. But then to fucking hear it. Yeah. Man, I I can't. My heart truly goes out to each and every person that has been affected by these two fucking shit stains.
1: I'm glad they're dead.
0: I'm fucking glad they're dead, too. So on that note, we hope you enjoyed the coverage today, you guys. We know it was definitely a little rough, but nonetheless, we appreciate you sticking in there with us and hanging in there with us. You did a damn good job. You did a damn good job. And if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird... Well, great news. You can definitely do that.
1: Find us on Facebook at
0: Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. And Gore Report podcast.
1: And Twitter. And Gore Report word I know
0: he's coming back slowly but surely I promise I don't have anything else to say about this episode I fucking hate both of these little shit stains the murder mac is the lamest shit I've ever heard in my fucking life and again glad they're dead and until next time bye, bye. Are you afraid? you